This program is brought to you with support from the U.S. EPA. We're here to present the EFC Network Podcast. The Environmental Finance Center Network is a partnership of 12 centers serving 10 EPA regions. The EFCN provides training and technical assistance to small water and wastewater systems. This podcast series has been designed to help system personnel improve technical, managerial, and financial capacity of the utilities and communities they serve. Welcome to the Small Water System Technical Assistance Podcast from the Office of Water Programs at Sacramento State. This is Episode 2, Drinking Water Sources. I'm Todd Granicher. I'm a research associate at OWP. I'm Brian Courier. I'm also a researcher at OWP. Many people have a general idea that their drinking water goes through a treatment plant before it comes out of their faucets at home. But where does the treatment plant get its water? That's the topic of this podcast episode, source water for small drinking water systems. Today we'll cover surface water sources, including rivers, lakes, and reservoirs, groundwater sources, meaning aquifers, the characteristics of surface and groundwaters, and treatment requirements for surface and groundwater. So why is understanding and properly treating source water important? Well, to answer that, let's talk about an incident that happened in 2012 in Utah. 28 people who lived on the same street in the same neighborhood reported gastrointestinal illness during a seven-week period. Samples from five individuals were positive for Giardia, a waterborne organism found in surface water that causes an intestinal infection. In the month before the first case, the neighborhood's municipal water source transitioned from one municipal water source to another, causing low pressure in the neighborhood's water distribution system. The change in water pressure temporarily allowed untreated water to enter the distribution system. The source of the untreated water and the Giardia was a separate irrigation system in the neighborhood. This surface water from the irrigation system contaminated the drinking water and caused the illness. This example demonstrates the risk that an unknown and untreated water source, in this case the irrigation system, can pose to public health and the need for identifying, properly treating it to remove contaminants like microorganisms. So we mentioned at the start that we'll be talking about source water for small drinking water systems. Before we go into more detail about source water, let's review background definitions and concepts. First, what do we mean by small, water, for, by small drinking water systems? The US EPA defines small water drinking systems as a system serving 10,000 or fewer customers. More than 92% of the water systems in the U.S. are classified as small systems. The Safe Drinking Water Act further defines three tiers of small water systems. Those serving 3,301 to 10,000 persons, 501 to 3,300 persons, and 500 or fewer persons. It is also helpful to understand what we mean by drinking water treatment. Drinking water systems take water from the source water clean it through various treatment processes and then deliver the safe, clean water to customers for their daily use. Contamination can occur in the source water as well as during water treatment and distribution failures such as insufficient chemical addition in response to changes in surface water quality or broken pipes. In the example from Utah, the irrigation water that was inadvertently used in the neighborhood wasn't treated like drinking water was. If the irrigation water had been treated through disinfection and filtration processes, disease-causing organisms like Giardia 
would have been inactivated and the water would have been safe to drink. Some water requires other treatment processes to make it safe to drink. The EPA regulates municipal water systems and requires testing of over 90 contaminants, including microorganisms, inorganic and organic chemicals, radionuclides, and disinfectants. Complying with water quality regulations help ensure that safe water is delivered to customers. One more thing that's useful to understand is the water cycle. Sometimes it's called the hydrologic cycle. No matter what you call it, it's a description of the flow of water from the sky to the earth and back up to the sky. The water cycle doesn't really have a beginning or an end, but it's easier to talk about it if we pick a starting point. So we'll start with the ocean. Water evaporates from the ocean by the energy of the sun at a rate of about six feet of water per year. The water that is evaporated is salt-free water because the mineral salts do not evaporate and are left behind. This water vapor rises, is carried along by winds, and eventually condenses into clouds. When clouds become chilled, the small particles of water collect into larger droplets. These may fall over land or water in the form of rain, snow, sleet, or hail. All water falls to the earth as some form of precipitation. The droplets that fall over land masses make up our supply of fresh water. This water may soak into the ground, accumulate as snow in cold climates, collect in lakes, or flow into streams and rivers back into the ocean. At any point from mountaintop to ocean, water can evaporate back into the atmosphere, continuing the cycle. Remember, this isn't the whole story. If you're interested in the water cycle, the U.S. Geologic Survey has more in-depth information and a good graphic at their Water Science School website. Put USGS Water Science School in your browser's search bar. Now that we've covered some basics, we can talk about source water, which is sometimes called raw water. Source water can be surface water or groundwater. We'll start with surface water. Much of the drinking water supplied to large municipal systems comes from surface waters like streams, rivers, lakes, and reservoirs. Let's consider streams and rivers first, then we'll move on to lakes and reservoirs. In using a river or stream supply, operators should always be concerned with upstream conditions. The water supply for some cities may come from a stream or river that contains treated wastewater or sewage discharged from other cities located upstream. Upstream contamination from wildlife, wastewater discharge, farm drainage, or industries makes the proper treatment of water from river and stream supplies vital. Clear water is not always safe water. The old saying that running water purifies itself within a certain distance is false. Contaminated water can carry diseases such as typhoid, hepatitis, giardia, and a lot of other things. Rivers and streams are also subject to scouring of the bottom, changing channels, and silting. Before the intake of a water supply is placed in a river or stream, a careful study must be made of these conditions to minimize the amount of solids pulled into the treatment plant. The intake also must be designed so that it can stand up to the forces it will face during flooding, heavy silting, icing, and poor runoff conditions. Because the quality of water supplied by a river or stream is highly variable, it must be checked all the time. Other surface water options are ponds, lakes, and open reservoirs. These sources can be contaminated by many of the same things affecting streams and rivers, such as wastewater discharges, but they also present unique operational challenges for the treatment plant operator. For example, lakes and reservoirs are subject to seasonal changes in water quality called overturn. Overturn can cause an increase in organic and mineral contamination that occurs when a lake turns over, bringing cold water and contaminants from deeper levels of the lake to the surface. 
in any body of water, the surface water will be warmed by the sun in the spring and summer, causing higher temperatures on the surface. Warm water is less dense than cool water, so it basically floats over the cold water. Then in the fall, the cooler air temperatures cool the surface water until it reaches the same temperature as waters below the surface. At this point, the water temperature is nearly the same throughout the entire depth of the lake. A breeze starts the surface water circulating and causes the deeper water to rise to the surface of the lake. Deeper water is usually poorer quality than the water near the surface and the rise increases organic and mineral content throughout the lake. Lakes and reservoirs are also at risk for algal blooms, especially after fall or spring overturn. The rapid growth of algae, called a bloom, will occur when the temperature is right and when the water contains enough nutrients to sustain growth. In any body of water, blooms of algae can occur several times during the season. In areas experiencing drought, heat and shrinking bodies of water creates an ideal environment for algae to thrive on nutrients that have also increased from lack of normal flushing. Another avenue for contamination is recreation. Large bodies of water often attract recreation activities like swimming, boating, fishing. If the water is also used for domestic supplies, we must protect it from contamination generated by recreation. Lakes with both uses should keep boat launching, ramps and harbors, picnic and camping areas, and fishing and beach areas away from the treatment plant intake area. Land use authorities can prohibit the establishment of high-risk practices near intakes. Some land use authorities prohibit recreation use altogether for various reasons. Large lakes and reservoirs generally offer good quality source water, especially if the intake facilities have openings at several depths. This is because the water can be drawn from a depth where algal growths and other problems are not common. A large lake or reservoir also dilutes any contamination that might have been discharged into it or one of its branches. Remember that even good quality surface water must be treated before being delivered to consumers. Whether lake or stream, all surface water is considered to be contaminated and unsafe for home unless it is properly treated. At a minimum, surface water must be filtered and disinfected before it is used as drinking water. The other source of drinking water is groundwater. Groundwater is fed by surface waters and by direct infiltration of water in the land where it fell. Gravity pulls water down until it collects in a zone where all the space in between the rocks and soil materials are filled with water. This zone is known as the zone of saturation. Water in the zone of saturation is called groundwater. The upper surface of the zone of saturation is called the water table. When impermeable rock lies above the water in the zone of saturation and keeps it under pressure, the groundwater is said to be under artesian pressure. However, not all water from wells that penetrate artesian formations flows to ground level. For a well to be artesian, the water in the well must rise above the top of the aquifer. An aquifer is an underground layer of rock or soil that permits the passage of water forming a groundwater reservoir. The porous material just above the water table may contain water. This zone is referred to as capillary fringe. Since the water held in the capillary fringe will not drain freely by gravity, this zone is not considered a true source of water because gravity cannot draw that water into a well. Underground deposits and surface topography are uneven. This means that the water table sometimes meets the surface of the ground at a spring or in the bed of a, a stream, lake, or the ocean. Groundwater moves into these locations as seepage out of the aquifer. 
the water table may slope from areas of recharge to lower areas of discharge. These slopes cause the water in the aquifer to flow. Seasonal variations in the supply of water to the underground reservoir cause large changes in the elevation and slope of the water table as well as artesian pressure. That means groundwater is always moving within the aquifers even though the movement may be very slow. How can this water in the water table be accessed and used as a drinking water source? One way is through springs where groundwater flows naturally from the ground. Depending on whether the discharge is from a water table or an artesian aquifer, springs may flow by gravity or by artesian pressure. The flow from a spring may vary considerably. When the water table or artesian pressure changes, so does the flow from the spring. Because of this variability, springs aren't commonly used to access groundwater. Instead, wells that extend into the water table pump water from the groundwater basin. While the amount of water from groundwater wells is less variable than from springs, the amount of water available can change over time. Pumping will lower the water table near the well. If pumping continues at a rate greater than the replacement rate for the water-bearing formations, the well will not be able to provide as much water as before. To prevent this, the well shouldn't pump more than the safe yield, which is the annual quantity of water that can be taken from a source over a period of years without depleting the source permanently. Analyzing drought cycles may require an extended analysis over many years. Pumping beyond the safe yield not only reduces the amount of water available, but causes other harmful effects. One is seawater intrusion into aquifers, which makes the water less suitable for drinking and irrigation. Another is land subsidence, which is when the soil that was once holding the water settles and compacts such that the land surface lowers. Land subsidence is a problem in areas of the western U.S. where aquifers have been pumped for many years. Subsidence causes cracking and breaking of water in wastewater pipes and canals. Now that we know what source water is, we're ready to talk about water quality. Keep the information about surface water and groundwater in mind because the source influences the quality of the drinking water delivered to customers. Source water quality is an expression of how contaminated the water is and the treatment it needs to make it safe for and suitable to drink. Water quality parameters are classified into four major categories. The first is physical characteristics related to the aesthetic qualities of water. For example, the water's color, turbidity, temperature, taste, and odor are all physical characteristics. Second, chemical characteristics that include mineral content and whether or not the water contains substances such as fluoride, sulfide, and acids. The different washing abilities of hard and soft water is one visible effect of chemical differences. Third, the presence of living or dead organisms such as viruses, bacteria, algae, and mosquito larvae, and other things like that, make up the biological characteristic of the water. These may also be important in changing the physical and chemical characteristics of the water. Fourth and finally, radiological factors. There's a possibility that the water may have come in contact with naturally occurring radioactive substances that can cause adverse health effects. In the development of water supply systems, it is important to carefully examine all the factors that might adversely affect the water supply. We're gonna get more detailed about the first major parameter we discussed a minute ago, physical characteristics. Remember, these characteristics affect the sensory qualities of water. Drinking water should not contain any impurities that offend the senses of sight, taste, and smell.
Let's talk about each in turn. Turbidity is caused by tiny suspended particles that make the water appear cloudy. Clay, silt, fine organic material, plankton, and other or inorganic materials give the water this appearance. Turbidity is measured in turbidity units. Turbidities greater than five turbidity units are visible in a glass of water. Not only is this an aesthetic problem, but it can also have health implications. The main concern of turbidity in drinking water, especially from surface water sources, is that it can shield bacteria and viruses from the disinfection process. Water that has been filtered to remove turbidity should contain much less than one turbidity unit. Good treatment plants should be able to produce water with a turbidity level of five hundredths to three tenths of a turbidity unit. Color comes from dyeing plants and other materials that dissolve in water and give it an unusual color. Sometimes large blooms of algae or the growth of other aquatic or microorganisms may also give water a color. Iron and manganese may result in consumer complaints about red or black water. Although the color itself is not a problem from a strict health standpoint, it is visually unpleasant. Color suggests that the water needs better treatment. In some cases, color in the water indicates more than an aesthetic problem. An amber color may indicate the presence of humic substances, which could later react with chlorine to form harmful trihalomethanes. An amber color could also indicate acid waters from mine drainage. Temperature is a characteristic of water that affects how appetizing it is. The most pleasing drinking water is consistently cool and does not have a temperature change of more than a few degrees. Water that comes from the mountains generally meets this requirement. Most people find that water between 50 and 60 degrees Fahrenheit is most pleasing. The temperature of groundwater varies with the depth of the aquifer. Water from wells that are more than a thousand feet deep might be, might be quite warm. Temperature also affects how we perceive tastes and odors. Taste can vary from source to source. Taste comes from the minerals that are dissolved in the water. Sometimes algal growth also gives water a distinguishing, unpleasant taste. Taste is rarely measured because most water treatment plants cannot change the water's mineral characteristics. Most people are more sensitive to taste in warmer water. The last offensive characteristic we'll address is odors. Growth of algae in a water supply can give the water a disagreeable odor. Also, some groundwater sources may contain hydrogen sulfide, which will produce an unpleasant rotten egg odor. As with taste, odor is usually more noticeable in warmer water. In addition to these physical characteristics, chemical characteristics are an important aspect of water quality. Chemical analysis of a domestic water supply is broken down into three areas. Inorganic chemicals include nonmetals, fluoride and nitrate, and many toxic metals. Organic chemicals can include pesticides, gasoline additives, dry cleaning solvents, and other chemicals. General mineral constituents and characteristics include alkalinity, calcium, iron, magnesium, manganese, sodium, and hardness. Upper limits have been established for the concentrations of the chemicals found in drinking water by the Safe Drinking Water Act. As surface water creeps downward to the water table, it dissolves some of the minerals contained in soils and rocks. Groundwater, therefore, sometimes contains more dissolved minerals than surface water. Chemicals that are spilled or improperly disposed of can also contaminate groundwater. Also, drinking water must not contain any disease-producing organisms. These are called pathogens. Pathogens include bacteria, protozoa, spores, viruses, cysts, and parasitic worms. 
Many pathogens come from the waste discharged by people who already have a disease. However, it is rarely practical to observe and control the activities of human disease carriers. For this reason, we set up community-wide sanitation practices and procedures to prevent contamination of a normally safe water source. In addition, operators use treatment methods that will produce safe water. Unfortunately, it's not easy to find out which pathogens are present in water. The methods are complex and take a long time. Instead, scientists have designed tests that indicate contamination by using an easily defined quality. The most widely used test involves counting the number of bacteria of the coliform group, which are always present in fecal waste in much greater numbers than pathogens. Coliform bacteria normally live in the human intestinal tract, but are also found in most animals and birds, as well as in the soil. Coliforms are a good indicator of the potential presence of pathogens. So if the number of coliform bacteria is zero in the water source, we may assume the number of pathogens will also be zero. The Drinking Water Standards and the Safe Drinking Water Act set upper limits for the concentration of coliform bacteria in water samples with a goal of zero coliform. The surface water treatment rule requires filtration and disinfection if the water supply is surface water or groundwater under the influence of surface water. The exception might be source waters that meet a very high standard of purity. Groundwater under the influence of surface water is any water beneath the surface of the ground with significant occurrence of insects or microorganisms, algae or larger pathogens such as giardia. It can also be water beneath the surface with significant and relatively rapid shifts in water characteristics that closely correlate to climatological or surface water conditions. The filtration and disinfection process protects the public against the spread of diseases that are carried in water. The fourth water quality parameter is radioactivity. Radioactive material tends to be present more often in groundwater than in surface water sources. Most radioactive material in drinking water comes from the rocks and soil the water flows through. The health effects from exposure to high uranium, for example, includes changes in kidney function and an increased risk of cancer. All community water systems need to monitor for safe limits of radioactive material in their drinking water. With all these possible contaminants in source water, how can anyone be sure that the water coming out of the faucet is safe to drink? The good news is that professional operators who understand their systems, including the source water, are applying their skills and knowledge to produce and deliver safe, clean, and aesthetically pleasing drinking water to their customers. That work includes protecting surface and groundwater sources and evaluating the quality of those sources so that appropriate treatment processes can be used to make the water safe. For more information about water treatment training and continuing education, visit our website at www.owp.csus.edu. We'll also post the transcript of this episode and links to other episodes on small water system operation. Thank you for listening. Thank you to all our listeners for tuning into this episode of the EFC Network Podcast, brought to you with support from the U.S. EPA. Be sure to stay tuned for future EFC Network podcast episodes.